Well, hey, welcome. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, I've had an eventful uh, week. Uh, my uh, son, Riley, and his wife, Elena, welcomed their uh, third baby. Uh, so Bennett is here. And so instead of a sermon this week, I thought I'd just show you uh, a number of slides. Uh, no, I have no pictures but uh, with me. Uh, that I can show you, but uh, if you wonder what he looks like, uh, just picture Riley, but uh, smaller and with less hair, which is kind of like me. That's I'm smaller and less hair. I'm I am Bennett, so it's uh, pretty exciting. Hey, this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be slowing the pace down. If you remember last week, I know it's a long time ago, but last week we covered four chapters in the book of Revelation to complete our series, Unfolding Grace. This week, we're going to cover four verses, okay? So that's going to be a little bit easier. So you can turn in your Bibles uh, to the New Testament book of uh, Titus. Uh, if you know, don't know where that is, uh, find the Timothys and turn right, or look in your table of contents. Uh, today, we're going to kick off a seven-week series through this short letter. Uh, first, let me introduce you to the young pastor uh, to whom this book is addressed, uh, and these 46 uh, verses are written to him. Uh, he was most likely a convert of Paul coming to Christ during that first missionary journey, and he was a Gentile. His name, the name Titus, means honorable, and Titus, as a disciple, lived up to his name. Paul writes about him in 2 Corinthians because he had sent uh, Titus to that church to deal with some of the problems they were having, and he calls him a partner in the gospel. He says that Titus has a heart for people, especially where, where they are spiritually, that he was diligent in the work of ministry, that he was faithful in service, and that he was brave, like he was the kind of guy Paul could count on. In fact, Titus had so proven himself to be both faithful and brave in some really hard situations that difficult ministry environments be, kind of became his thing, his specialty. And so later on in Paul's life, before Paul dies, he sends Titus to the Roman province of Dalmatia, which was most famous for kind of a hub of pirates. And so he sent him there to plant a church and to equip the church there. And so uh, this is a great character in the Scripture, Titus. Um, when he gets this letter, he is serving as sort of a church planter, uh, pastor, and bishop over the churches on the island of Crete, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, now, Crete most likely first heard about Jesus when some of its Jewish pilgrims and converts to Christianity came back to the island after hearing Peter's sermon on uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now Paul first encountered the believers and the church there later on in the book of Acts when he is on his way to Rome to stand before the tribunal there with Caesar. And what he discovered probably was a church that was isolated, that was ill-equipped, lacking leadership, and needing direction. And so he most likely returned to Crete after he was released from his house arrest in Rome and spent some time with the church. And then he leaves Titus there with a lot of work to do on a 
in an area and on an island where the people were kind of a train wreck. Like one commentator wrote about the island population, he says that they had earned a reputation for low culture, brutish behavior, and enthusiasm enthusiasm for everything but work. Like this was a lazy bunch of drunk folks. Like he set Titus down in the middle of a frat party and said, plant a church there. That was the island of... Uh, of Crete, like Dalmatia, it became a hub for piracy. And one historian says that the people there just stayed drunk. Like from morning till night, they were always drinking and always had a little bit of a buzz going on. One historian wrote that there was nowhere in the ancient world where the politicians were more corrupt than on the island of Crete. And Cicero wrote, the moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery to be honorable. Like this is where Titus has to plant the church and establish leaders in every city. Paul describes this mission field in the book of Titus. Uh, You can turn there, Titus 1 verse 12, he writes this. He says, one of their own prophets, speaking of a philosopher, uh, Epitomes, who lived on Crete, one of their own prophets said, Cretans, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he adds this statement, hey, their testimony is true. Which you got to think, okay, Paul, tell me what you really think. That is really harsh. But Paul would probably say, hey, listen, don't blame me. I'm, I'm quoting their own guy. I just kind of think he nailed it. Like, that's exactly what I see when I go to that island. That's how y'all live. You, you think that life is just a party. And so, Christian, if you were just dropped off alone on the island of Crete in the mid part of the first century with the job of planting a church, where would you even start? Like, what would you do? I mean, certainly beyond language lessons and how to function without a cell phone and, you know, how to manage going to the bathroom without a flushing toilet, those kind of things, right? But how would you, like, start to plant a church? I mean, how would you live out your faith in a culture that is difficult and immoral like the island of Crete? Like, how would you respond to people who, when they looked at your faith, they were consistent, it was consistently despised and belittled? Like, how would you share your faith in a place where most people find it either irrelevant or ridiculous? I mean, that's if they can be sober enough even to listen to a gospel presentation. Like, how would you start? How would you plant a church there? It's, it's those questions that Paul decides he's going to answer for Titus in this very short letter. So where do you start? Do you do an apologetics class for the handful of believers that are on that island? Kind of teach them how to give an answer to anyone who asks about their faith? Is that that where you start? Or maybe you start with a a service project. Like you, you look at the island and you think, okay, what needs to be done? Like what's essential to get fixed on this broken island that even the unbelievers agree to and we can partner with them and that's kind of a doorway to sharing our faith. Or, you know, 
politicians are so corrupt here. Like I need to engage with like the political world. I need to get like equip some people so they can run for office. Is that where I start? I mean, all of those things are good things. But that's not Paul's starting point. Paul, Paul starts with what he calls the truth that leads to godliness. The truth that leads to godliness. A phrase he uses in the very first verse of the first chapter. And with those words, he introduces really the theme of this entire book. Like it's the sounding of a note, the striking of a chord that will be heard throughout the rest of these 46 verses. And this is what he's saying. The gospel, once embraced, should lead to godliness. The gospel should lead to godliness. Like godliness isn't like synonymous with morality. Like it's not synonymous with, you know, you know, being nice. Like godliness in scripture is a way of living that pleases God. Certainly it's moral, but it's way more than that. It's a transformation from the inside out. Like it's the, the old fashioned word piety or reverence, or holiness. It's loyalty to God. It's living in the fear of God. It's transformation. It's life change. The gospel should lead to godliness. It should lead to life change. That's one of those things that when you say it, like in your church in the 21st century in Texas, people would say, well, obviously. That goes without saying. Well, apparently not on Crete, right? That's not how it worked on that island. It seems like there were a lot of Cretan believers who had a problem practicing what they preached. Like, can you relate to that? Like, this is the way it's supposed to work. I have a graphic for you that, to me, explains the book, okay? The way it's supposed to work is that there's supposed to be this alignment, like this, this match up, right, between what we believe and how we behave. Like our beliefs should match our behavior. That's the way it's supposed to look. Next slide. There we go. Like our beliefs should match our behavior. Like you see this first line, and that's your beliefs. And then your second line is a mirror of that. That's your behavior. Like when Amy and I uh, end up putting on the same T-shirt or something, and I walk out of the closet and she sees me and she sees her shirt and then sees my shirt, she'll say, Twinkies! <laughs> to which I go change, right? <laughs> like that would have been cute when we were young, but now it's just, you know, I don't want to wear the same shirt. Come on. Like it's matchy-matchy. I don't want to be matchy-matchy. But guys, in, in our beliefs, we should be Twinkies. We should be matchy-matchy with our behavior. Like there should be a consistency between creed and conduct. Okay? Between these great beliefs that you say, this is absolutely essential. This matters to me. I hold to this and how you live your life. Let me introduce you to a couple words. The words are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You know, you know probably one of these words, but uh, they both have the same uh, preface here. You know, it's the word ortho, orthopedics, 
orthodontics. These are the people who straighten you out, right? Whether it's your back, your leg, or your teeth. They're the ones who make things straight. That's what ortho means. To align something, to straighten something, to make it right. And orthodoxy is right belief, right? It's, it's, it's right opinion. It's believing what is true. And orthopraxy is right practice. It's, it's living out what you say is true. There needs to be a, an alignment between these two things. They should match. You see, the letter of Titus is all about the connection between sound doctrine and sound living. Sound doctrine and sound living. What some theologians and some pastors call incarnational living. Like this is the Bible and I believe it and you can know that I believe it by just looking at my life. That's the way it's supposed to be. Like when sound doctrine lines up with sound living, what you have is a whole person. You have somebody who's genuine, who's real, that you can count on, that has credibility. And this is a powerfully evangelistic combination. And so Paul is telling Titus throughout this book, you want to reach an island? Live out what you say you believe. Like match what you say you believe. Like there should be an alignment between what you believe and how you behave. That's the way it's supposed to work. But that was not the case in Crete. That's not the church that Paul found when he visited there. It's not the church that he left Titus to clean things up. Like Paul writes in Titus 1.16 about leaders within the church. People who had taken a prominent role in the church on the island of Crete. They claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. The circle was not complete. Now, guys, we could all say this about ourselves, right? I mean, we could all say, you know what? I don't live up to my own expectations. I certainly don't live up to God's expectations. I fail every day. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not talking about merely being human. He's talking about being hypocritical. He's talking about people who say, no, I hold to this wholeheartedly. This is the truth. And yet they do not practice what they preach. Do you know any Christians that way? Like, do you work with Christians who are like that? Like, do you go to school with people who claim the name of Christ who are like that? Do you have people in your own family who are like this? They claim to know God, but they deny Him by their Works. I just wonder, how effective is their evangelism? Like as they try to share their faith at work, who's listening? Right? If they're at a family reunion and they start up a conversation about spiritual things, is anybody tuning in? Like at your school, do people see them as credible, as the real deal? Or does the way they live disarm the message? Like, are people lining up to visit their church when they invite them? No. In fact, how does it impact your own witness to be identified with them? 
Like you open your mouth at work and they think, oh, he's just like Bob. You know, the last thing I want to do is be like Bob. You know, it, does it wreck your witness as well? See, they that's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, Paul says, by contrast, he says what we need to do is we need to remain faithful in the hardest of times, in the toughest of situations. We must align sound doctrine and sound living so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's saying, hey, you know what? You want to make the Gospel even more beautiful? You want to make your doctrine even more like real for people? Like this kind of living validates the Gospel to the watching world. It arms instead of disarms your witness. Now it doesn't make the Gospel more true. The Gospel is true. So it doesn't make it more true. It just makes it more credible. The Gospel should lead to godliness. Paul repeats this theme again and again. Remember, he's training up this young pastor, church planter, bishop, and he wants him to communicate this to the churches. He writes in chapter 3, verse 8, I want you to insist on these things. Okay, these are deal breakers, Titus. Like these are the things that you say, okay, among our leaders, among the people who claim the name of Christ, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Be different. And then he adds this, these are good and profitable for everyone. And by everyone, he means everyone. Not just those within the church, but those outside of the church. Like he's saying, this benefits everyone. It authenticates what we believe. Like it's a stamp of approval saying genuine, the real article. There has to be an alignment between what we believe and how we behave. A consistency between our creed and our conduct, our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. Like outsiders... <laughs> should be able to make a clear connection between our sound doctrine and our sound living. So that, like if they find out that you're a Christian at your place of business, like somebody mentions to you like something about church and they, that you're a Christian and they overhear it, their response should be, well, oh yeah, I mean, I saw that one. I mean, obviously. I mean, just the way they live, the way they act, their demeanor, how they carry themselves, how they respond to things about them. When they mention that you're a Christian at school, at work, in a family reunion, everybody should say, oh yeah, I mean, I see that. Obviously. They shouldn't say, what? Like that guy? <laughs> no way. Seriously? I would have never seen that. Alright, I guess God will just save anybody. Like, I've, I've been at lunch with people in our church, and a coworker has come up to the table, and this coworker, this, this person I'm having lunch with, introduces me to them as their pastor, and they look at me like, like a deer in headlights. Like, not, not because I'm a pastor and they don't know what to say, but because I'm a pastor and I'm eating with them. Like, 
you have a pastor? Okay. I guess he's not very good. Like it's not taken, right? Paul says, when you see this alignment, and when outsiders see this alignment between what you believe and how you behave, between sound doctrine and sound living, Paul says, that's how you reach an island. That's how you reach a city. That's how you get people to kind of sit up and take notice. That's where you start. Before everything else, before the apologetics class, Remember, Peter says that we need to be ready to give an answer, meaning that there's a question. We need to be ready to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that we have. Like people should see our lives and what we're hoping in, and as a result of that, man, they should have a lot of questions. Like I just think, uh, like... uh, not this past week, but the week before last, I went to the doctor uh, to kind of figure out what was going on with my breathing and with my throat and some other issues I'm having. And the doctor told me after he went through my symptoms that I have what he calls post-COVID syndrome. Post-COVID syndrome. I I got the feeling, like I'm not a doctor or anything, but I got the feeling that anything I named would have been post-COVID syndrome, right? Oh, man, I pulled this muscle behind my knee. Post-COVID, that's it, post-COVID. Yeah, I had diarrhea last week, post-COVID. It's going to happen. I'm losing my hair. Oh, that, I'm going to write that one down. That's ser- seriously post-COVID. Everything's post-COVID. I got the feeling that, guys, these guys don't really know a lot about this thing that shut down the world for almost... Two years. So what are you hoping in? Are you hoping in a vaccination? I had that vaccination. I got COVID four months later. The doctor said four months. Yeah, that's about what we're seeing. (laughs) Four months? Come on. Give me at least six. And so are you hoping? Are you placing your hope in the Fauci ouchie? Is that where you have your hope? Come on. Church, as the world looking at us and seeing us placing our hope in the exact same thing they place their hope in, why would they ask us about Jesus? They should see us living with a greater kind of confidence, a hope, a belief that our God is bigger than this, that our lives are in His hand, that we can trust Him. When they see that, they will ask the reason for the hope that we have, and we will have an opportunity to answer with gentleness and respect. Like not preaching anti-mask or pro-mask, preaching the gospel. Church, this is not an evangelistic technique. Paul's not teaching some sort of newfangled evangelistic technique. This is the gospel. This is what it looks like. This is the very reason you were saved. It's why you were called. It's why you were chosen. This is your purpose. This is your reason for living. Like God saved you from sin to make you brand new. Like Paul puts it this way in chapter 2 of Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. By the way, grace has a face, and His name is Jesus. 
That's what he's talking about. The grace of God has appeared when? When did that happen? In the person of Jesus. He appeared bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny godliness, godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. What's His name? Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior. And then he captures it this way. He, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. I have been changed from the inside out. Does that sound like you? Like this eagerness to be obedient to God, eagerness to pursue Him, eagerness for holiness, hatred of sin. Do you see yourself in that verse? Like this is the very reason that you were saved. It was true for Paul and it's true for you. And so he introduces this letter with these words. Paul, a servant of God, literally a slave. Like Paul's identity is that he was a slave for God. He had no more honorable title than that. You can't get any better than that. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle, a representative, an emissary of Jesus Christ for, and this is Paul's purpose, for the faith of God's elect. Like Paul says, hey, I show up, I open my mouth, and Paul and, and God opens hearts. I just open my mouth to preach the gospel and God opens hearts. So I'm for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the, here's that phrase, truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began. Paul's saying, listen, I was sent to proclaim faith to those that God has chosen. And to teach them to know this truth that changes them from the inside out, that transforms them to help them live lives that are pleasing to God. This truth, this transformation gives us confidence that we have the eternal life that God has promised. It stamps genuine on our lives. Like the more and more and more I see God changing me from the inside out, the more and more confidence I have that I am His and that I have eternal life. The good works don't save me. They just attest to the fact that God already has. In His own time, He has revealed His Word. How? In the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. See, at just the right time, God let the world know all about this amazing life He offers. And He does it through ordinary people just like me and you. Like Tim Chester writes of this verse, he says, As you speak the Gospel, eternity enters history. I mean, think about it. All the stuff we studied in Unfolding Grace, all this plan of God for the salvation of the nations, I have that message like on the tip of my tongue. And when I open my mouth, there's unfolding grace. Eternity enters into our history. 
And Paul writes to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Just in conclusion, Paul's going to say it over and over and over again, the, the truth that leads to godliness. The gospel should lead to godliness. Like, So does your doctrine match up? Are you matchy-matchy? Are you a Twinkie? Right? Does your doctrine match up with your living? Do you practice what you preach? Does your walk match your talk? Now, before you begin to freak out and just doubt everything you've ever believed, Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, when it comes to sanctification, that's growth and godliness. When it comes to sanctification, it's more important where you're going than where you are. See, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. And so the real question is this. What's your trajectory? Like, where are you heading? Like, when you look over the whole of your life since you came to Christ, like, do you see this steady growth with certainly hills and valleys, but do you see this growth toward Jesus that He's changing you from the inside out? Like, when I meet with people for counseling, often as they share some of the struggles that they're having, like they're sharing details. Often I'm not listening for details. I'm listening for direction. I'm listening for trajectory. Like are, are, does, does this mess that is their life, like does it show me that they're moving away from God? Or is this just something that's coming to a surface because they're actually moving toward Him? You know, most of the times, it's this. You see people who are trying to move toward God, and as a result, they're dealing with some of the mess that they've made of their life. What is your trajectory? And so here's a good place to start this morning, church. I want you to read the book of Titus this week three times. It'll take you about five minutes each time. Okay, I want you to read the book of Titus three times, 46 verses. I want you to read it in three different translations of the Bible. I want one of those to be a like a very loose translation, a paraphrase like the New Living Translation or the Message or something like that. The others could be more literal like the ESV uh, or the CSB or the New King James. But read it three times in three different translations. And as you read it, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I sound more like the people Paul Paul is trying to encourage or like the people he's trying to rebuke? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this week as we open Your Word and read the book of Titus together as a church, Lord, that You by Your Spirit would illuminate these words that You would expose things in our life, in our heart, that You would use this to conform us more to the image of Your Son. God, that there would be growth in godliness by Your church this week because we just opened Your Word and took You at Your Word. Lord, help us to be men and women that uh, our sound doctrine lines up with our sound living. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.